Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to the season finale of Atmospheric Tales. Our interview for this episode is Milena Ponchek. She is a postdoctoral researcher at the Laboratory of Atmospheric Physics at the University of Sao Paulo. I'm excited to have her again as our interviewer on the show. Our guest today is considered one of the world's leading authority on climate change in forests. She holds a PhD on spatial statistics from the University of Sheffield in the UK. She was a senior researcher at the National Institute for Space Research INPI in Brazil from 1982 until she retired in 2019. For many years she has participated in the negotiating process under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change on issues related mainly to forestry and reporting guidelines. She has several publications related to climate and forests and has participated in the development of innovative methodologies for reforestation under the Clean Development Mechanism. She has been a part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change IPCC for close to two decades from 2002 to 2015 she co-chaired the task force on national greenhouse gas inventories for the IPCC and in 2015 she was elected as one of the three vice chairs of the IPCC i'm excited to welcome our guest dr thelma krug welcome to the show milena and thelma thank you shazad for the introduction and thank you very much dr thelma for your participation at atmospheric tales podcast so i'd like to start uh, talking about ipcc IPCC stands for Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change and it's probably one of the most important and famous global scientific organizations. The IPCC was created to provide policymakers with regular scientific assessments on climate change, its implications and potential future risks, as well as to put forward adaptation and mitigation options. So Dr. Thelma can you give our listeners a broad overview what the IPCC is and what it does? Okay Milena thank you uh, thank you Shazar for the introduction and also for the invitation to be here it's really a pleasure. Uh, thanks also Milena for already introducing a little bit of the IPCC the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The IPCC is a governmental panel and uh, presently it has 195 member governments that are part of the IPCC. We don't do research. So the IPCC does not do research, but it is responsible for doing the assessment of all the information, be it scientific, technological, social, economic information that is relevant for the scientific Uh, assessment of the the risks of of climate change and also how we can respond to climate change in terms of mitigation which means uh you know how can we reduce the emissions or how, how can we enhance the removal of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and also uh adaptation to climate change so ipcc has three working groups This has been basically traditional for the last uh, assessment reports and uh, I will talk a little bit afterwards about what do I mean by assessment reports. So the working group 1 is the one that works with the physical basis of uh, of climate change. The working group 2 is the one that deals with uh with impacts, adaptation and vulnerabilities. And finally working group 3 
is the one that uh, works specifically or focuses specifically with the mitigation of climate change. And also we have a task force on national greenhouse gas inventories, which is responsible for uh, developing the methodologies that all the countries that are members to the Climate Change Convention have to report. So they use specifically, you know, the same guidelines for reporting the, the greenhouse gases. IPCC was created in 1988, so we have been uh, providing the updated information on climate change since 1988, and it was a joint initiative from the World Meteorological Organization, the WMO, and also from the United Nations Program on, on the Environment, UNEP. When in 1988, the General Assembly of the UN endorsed the establishment of the IPCC, it immediately assigned IPCC for the first task, which was to produce a first assessment report to assess the literature worldwide. Where do we stand in terms of scientific knowledge on climate change impacts and also the responses like mitigation and adaptation? So basically, it set this structure that we even have today for the IPCC with the three working groups. And, uh, and also, it was interesting because they included that as part of this first assessment report, the authors should also provide elements that could uh, be the pillars for the creation of an international setting or for a global forum where climate change could be dealt, which gave origin to the Climate Change Convention during the Rio Plus 92 in 92. So assessment reports are big ones. The first one was not that big. It was produced very quickly because in 1990, basically the authors had two years to provide this first assessment report. After that, we have reports coming in 95 and then 2001, 2007, 2013. So we have every assessment, uh, every cycle. We are now in the sixth cycle. So it started in 2015 and in 2023. So we consider our cycle to be the time needed to develop and have approved assessment reports. The last one had about 5,000 pages, so it was huge. All this comes from the assessment of uh, the global literature. So that is what is most important. So IPCC cannot be prescriptive, but it has to be relevant. So you're not going to hear from the IPCC anywhere in the reports that such a country is not doing enough, or such country should be doing more, or such country is doing marvelously in terms of mitigation actions. The more we can do is, uh, is to provide examples, experiences, both positive, most of the time are positive messages, but also negative when it's the case. What are the major improvements since this first report? Improvements in, the, in understanding and about the process as a whole? And what were the biggest gaps in climate change and in the IPCC today? There are several major improvements. IPCC works with a calibrated language. So the findings of the IPCC are based on the available evidence. So, so we provide some qualifiers for this, like there is limited evidence, medium evidence, robust evidence, or the level of confidence that we have on the findings or on the assessment. And also when it's possible, we also assess the likelihood or probability of a result. So we may say things like, it's virtually certain. So it's basically probability, a one or percentual probability, 
very likely it's a probability between 90 and 100. So it's interesting to see because this gives a, a higher level of confidence when the governments are looking at the findings and we say there is high agreement or very high agreement in it, or it's virtually certain. So we don't have doubts about this. So improvements that we see is that basically also the level of confidence or the evidence becomes more robust from one assessment to the other. So there are some interesting examples. One that I normally like to mention is the human interference in terms of the climate, right? So if we look at the language in the first assessment report, when uh, indeed uh, observations led, you were having a different trend in the observations, but there was not really an association of why there could be changes in the observations at that point in time. And so in the first assessment report, the language was like the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on the global climate. And then when we go to the next assessment report, 2001, so it was on the third assessment report, when the language changed a little bit, being a little bit stronger, when they said that there is new and stronger evidence that most of the warming observed in the past 50 years is attributable to human activities. And then uh, finally in 2013, the human influence in the climate system is clear. You see how the language becomes stronger and stronger as we go, and we have more evidence. So that, yeah. that is one of the examples that I give. Another one that I give is like, you know, the climate models that we have to do climate predictions or forecasting. And when we started in the first assessment report, basically the components of the climate system were atmosphere, land surface, and ocean or sea ice. So those were the three ones. And then when we moved to the second assessment report, on the top of these three, we included aerosols. And then when we moved to the third assessment report, on the top of the four elements that I, or components I mentioned before, we also included uh, the dynamic vegetation, the carbon cycle. And in the fourth, we introduced atmospheric chemistry and land ice. And finally, in the fifth, we do coupled climate models, which are really the top models that you could have. But obviously, as I say, these improve systematically. You have systems that can cope you know, with models that are becoming more and more complex. Although, you know, when IPCC does the assessment, it goes from simple models to the most complex ones. So we are not basing only in one, but we, we want also to have how these models are behave in terms of uh, its predictability uh, capacity. As I say, most of uh, the assessment just improved the language. So what we said before with medium confidence, we moved to high, higher. So that has been uh, basically the trend, I would say, going from one assessment to another. What I find really, really, really interesting about IPCC is that in every chapter or sometimes even sessions, they indicate knowledge gaps. An indication of knowledge gaps are meant to stimulate research. So to indicate to the world, where do we identify that, you know, we need more uh, scientific knowledge? However, it's important to really frame these gaps as not... Uh, influencing the already very robust findings that IPCC, uh, you know, has. 
So uh, sometimes we see that some countries say, you know, you have, uh, you know, so many gaps. So maybe we don't have an assurance of really where we are. But basically, uh, you know, this is not really where we want to go and it's not where we should be going. Uh, the scientific findings so far have been very robust sufficiently robust, I would say, with sufficient evidence as to not prevent any one country to be aggressively ambitious in reducing emissions and putting us in a pathway that will minimize the potential impacts and, uh, and risks of uh, climate change, both in the human system and also the natural system. So I think that this frames really two things, flagging that there are gaps, and second, these gaps do not invalidate all the very robust findings and the evidence that we have. The IPCC reports are critical documents for scientists, policymakers, advocacy groups, and so on. Can you take us through the review process of the IPCC report? How do, we, do you ensure the best representation of scientific consensus in these reports, while also conveying uncertainties? Products of the IPCC have to be approved by consensus by its 195 member governments. So it's quite challenging, right? But I, I think that the process that goes from beginning to end uh, is really what I like to call the best bridge between science and uh, policy decision. Besides the assessment reports, the IPCC also produces some special reports. Uh, we don't have a huge capacity to produce too many a year. This cycle has been unique because we had three special reports and then still working on the assessment report, the big, big one. Uh, the characteristics of the special reports is that we produce them in a much shorter period of time, normally two and a half years. So it's much more compact and they are also used or as a basis also for the assessment reports of the words. Why do I say it's a nice bridge? Maybe it's better to start with giving the example of the special report. How is it decided? And then everything follows the same uh, pattern, more or less. So, so it starts with uh, some countries saying, we are really interested to have a special report, for instance, on ocean and cryosphere or climate change in land. Or maybe sometimes we are invited, as we were, to produce the global uh, warming of 1.5 special report. And that invitation came from the Climate Change Convention. So when the country says we want to have a special report, then all the countries have to agree. And we have a limited capacity, as I said, during a cycle to produce so many. So there was an interest to produce uh, in this cycle a special report on cities and climate change. But unfortunately, we didn't have the capacity. Say the, all the governments say, OK, so we decide we are going to have this special report. So once that decision is taken, we then start the process. And the process starts with a scoping meeting. A scoping meeting is a meeting only, only attended by researchers and experts. And uh, they are the ones who are tasked to see what can we deliver under this umbrella of this, like, say, ocean and cryosphere. Do we have uh, scientific support to really, you know, feed what are the themes we can cover? And then uh, this takes normally uh, five days of discussion. 
bullet points under each chapter that the scientists are pointing out. And uh, this is taken back to the panel, you know, these 195 uh, governments. And then the panel is the one who makes an assessment of, uh, is this report going to deliver what I am interested to have in terms of uh, the scientific knowledge to feed into my policymaking process? There is a discussion of the panel that eventually then signals or changes what the scientists have proposed into elements that they find uh, more interesting for them or where they want answers to come from science. Once the terms of reference is agreed by everyone, by all the 195 countries, that's when the process of uh, requesting the focal points of each country to indicate uh, potential authors for each one of the chapters and specific parts where they think they could work. So it's the focal points of each uh, member government who sends a list of potential authors and their expertise. So they send the CV, etc. That said, there needs to be a selection of the authors that effectively will work because we don't have resources to invite every single author that has been suggested by the country. We have financial limitations. There is one thing that is interesting, Lena. We need to ensure that there is a balanced participation of authors from all the six regions of the IPCC. We seek this balance between developed and developing countries. The balance sometimes is not perfect. The most difficult balance is found for working group one, the physical basis of climate change, especially when we are talking about modeling. On the other end, you find more authors that fit into the mitigation or even, you know, the impacts. Developing country participants or authors, they are supported by the trust fund of the IPCC and who contributes to the trust fund. The country is voluntary. Every single of the 195 countries contribute voluntarily to the trust fund of the IPCC. We also seek to have gender balance, but we, we are pursuing that. We are improving significantly, I would say. But uh, even the governments do not nominate too many women. Yes, and, I imagine. Yeah, no, they, they don't. We have even a task group that is thinking, how can we improve gender, gender not only women, gender in general in the IPCC? The first draft that comes from the authors is undergo expert review. We have about 700 experts. Everyone can undergo the review of parts. They don't have to read the whole thing, but they can read parts and comment on parts of the draft uh, reports. So we call it first order draft, which is really not very good, but it gets much better with the inputs from the expert reviewers. Expert reviewers are good because they are going to say, you have this many literature that you have not included in your assessment, you have repetition here, or you have something that is not consistent there. So it's really great. And all the comments have to be evaluated and commented also in an Excel spreadsheet by the authors. If they are going to take the comment into account, that is fine. But if not, they have to explain why not. So the second order draft that comes after this, that goes again for an expert review and also sent to governments. So governments have the opportunity to see the second order draft of any product of the IPCC. So it's that time when the, each government has a different way of how they do this. 
Some just send to the ministries, uh, others send to specific institutions, others do not send to anyone. But anyway, uh, they have the opportunity to comment. So every government should, in principle, understand, you know, what is in the report. If they see that there is any prescriptive part of the report, they can indicate that. They can indicate also additional literature and so on. So basically, I see this bridge because scientists are sending their assessment to the government so that they can comment before it's delivered at the end. So uh, then after that, you know, uh, they also have the same process. So for instance, for the working group one, we had in the second order review, 53,000 comments. And each Mm -hmm. one of them have to be looked at and answered. So it is a huge task. It becomes public, Melina, so everyone can see, you know, why my comment was not taken over. Eventually, because some governments do not read the whole thing, imagine, you know, the whole assessment, 5,000 pages. So it's very unlikely that the governments will read that. So we do what is called the summary for policymakers. And the summary for policymakers is something between 25, 30 pages. This has the main findings of the assessment. So it builds from previous ones, either because the language is improved, the the confidence is improved, the robustness of the finding is improved, the more evidence and so on. So anyway, the government can also send their comments on the summary for policymakers before we come to the final session of approval session, it's called. And that lasts about a week. Sometimes we don't sleep for a couple of days. Uh, It is very intense because every single paragraph has to be uh, approved by consensus. So you go paragraph by paragraph, and then the countries have the opportunity to question some of the scientists that are represented, uh, you know, in the panel session, so they can uh, explain the process. Sometimes there are questions about how many pieces of literature have you assessed to come up with this finding, or where these numbers coming from. So they dig into every single aspect. What a diplomatic challenge to coordinate all of these. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that, you know, the vice chairs also can help. Because I have been in the IPCC such a long time, I can basically talk to, to everyone. But, uh, you know, talking to government and uh, trying to understand better their concerns and see how we can, you know, uh, come up with a, a solution that doesn't question the findings. Uh, some mm-hmm. people say, well, do you have an interference of uh, the governments in the findings? And I, I certainly say no, but it's their right to understand where that is coming from. It's definitely a huge, huge, huge job. I personally uh, like uh, a lot the summary for policymakers, uh, and I, I appreciate that it's, uh, in my point of view, somehow uh, a way to make uh, the findings and the guidelines more uh, clear and closer to general public and to policymakers. We are trying to improve, Milena, because still the language of the IPCC is considered to be too complex. Uh, despite the fact that it's interesting this, because we started the cycle in 2015, the first meeting we had was in a, a communications expert meeting where IPCC invited the media to come in the technical support units, which are where uh, the co-chairs of each working group, you know, develop their their work. So we had 
had a huge number of people coming and uh, indicating to IPCC where we could improve in terms of uh, communication. So with that, every single, you know, for the three working groups, the technical support unit have hired experts in communication to really try to help us have some messages. I'm going to give an example here for the uh, special report on global warming on 1.5 degrees Celsius. The three messages that reverberated in the world was every action matters, every year matters, every warming matters. So those three messages have been so strong and it came from really the communication people. How can we communicate it very simply, the very complex findings of this report? Now uh, I would like to change just a little bit the subject of our talk and talk more about uh, the climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation uh, scenarios and plans. How to promote the transition uh, to a zero-carbon economy, economically attractive, and more importantly, how to promote those changes, maintaining living conditions for, for 7 billion people? Yeah, that is an important and difficult question to answer, Milena. If we look at the 1.5, everybody says they are, you know, we are pursuing efforts to really limit global warming to 1.5 at the end of this century uh, relative to the pre-industrial levels. So if you talk to businesses, they will say, we want to go 1.5. If you talk to governments, they will say, we want to also go into the direction of 1.5. However, going into a pathway that really limits global warming to 1.5 is a huge challenge and unprecedented in terms of the transformation. It's much more than we had in the fifth assessment report, where we already indicated the need to do a lot of mitigation because you did have different scenarios. 1.5 in its impacts relative to 2 and this half degree already made in some instances a huge difference. And this is why we said every warming matters. But then, you know, pursuing that is really a transformation. And as we say in the IPCC, in all areas of society, unprecedented. So you're talking about huge transformations or huge system transitions in energy, industrial processes, agriculture, uh, land, uh, transportation, infrastructure, waste. You're talking about everything, including human behavior. IPCC says that we do have to change consumption patterns, change diets in terms of moving into a low carbon. How do we do that when we have so many different national circumstances? In the world. So many distinct situations, even in rich countries, we don't say that's a problem of developing countries only, but you have vulnerable people in developed countries, developing countries as well. But obviously we do identify a much more difficult situation in developing countries especially because uh, sometimes they don't have the adaptive capacity, they don't have uh, the elements to really cope with uh, climate change, both mitigation and adaptation. So it's a transformation of the way the whole world has related globally so far. And we say how we can have fair burden sharing. How can developing countries participate with mitigation, but giving their share fair to this? This is very sensitive. This is a very sensitive discussion, but it's fair. Some countries say, well, I have not contributed to warming so far, or my contribution has been so small. 
how can I now divert my attention to do a lot of mitigation that not necessarily is aligned to sustainable development, the sustainable development goals, how much that is going to cost because I have other problems like health, uh, housing, transportation, you name it. So I think that, you know, the Paris Agreement uh, was very successful because it was very quick. If we take a comparison with the Kyoto Protocol, uh, which took years to be ratified, the Paris Agreement was ratified very, very quickly. They took about a year with most countries adhering to it and ratifying, which is really great. And all the countries engaging, which was different from the Kyoto Protocol, where only developed countries, you know, had emission reduction targets, which did not mean that developing countries were already not doing a lot of mitigation and adaptation themselves, but they didn't have a target. So in the Paris Agreement, we don't have targets for anyone, nor developing, nor developed. Why was it, you know, ratified so quickly? Because developed countries really mentioned that 100 billion US dollars would be put to support of the developing countries, which is there is money. Money is not all. We are talking about technology transfer. We are talking about capacity building. Uh, I don't have a silver bullet answer to your question. I would say that I myself put a lot of uh, hope that international cooperation has a lot to do in terms of helping countries to achieve their mitigation efforts. Every country has different barriers for the implementation of their mitigation actions, right? was in Japan the other day, and Japan has a target to fulfill. And they said, we are not going to be able to uh, reach our target in case we don't rely on nuclear. And they say, the technology is fine. We have replaced several of our plants. Technology has improved a lot as well in many aspects. But they say, there is no social acceptance. So there is a huge barrier for the implementation of that. So it is much more complex than we think. But also I think that engaging the subnational governance, as we say, uh, governance which entails an inclusive governance, I would say, which entails not only the national government, but it also includes the subnational governments, the local governments, the civil society, you know, the indigenous peoples, local people. So it's being very inclusive. And this might be helpful. And also the banking institutions, uh, public-private partnerships. So there is a whole world out there that needs to be explored. But definitely, I would say that, you know, the countries need to have a holistic vision of where they want to be, uh, what is the scope of their contribution. And um, as we see, you know, the Paris Agreement is now revisiting contributions by countries because we are not in the pathway to 1.5. We are in a pathway of three degrees Celsius at the end of the century, with the present uh, mitigation ambitions that countries have put forward. And talking about uh, challenge and effort, let me ask you about climate change denial. So while many people now believe that climate change is real and affecting our everyday life, still uh, many people question this science. And how do you think we can deal with climate skepticism and denialism? Yeah, you know, uh, from the IPCC point of view, our role is to provide everyone with the best science possible. And uh, with the evidence, you know, so because all the results, you know, they're evidence-based. Uh, so it is it's difficult why some people want to deny. 
many people say that, well, we have had, uh, you know, uh, warming in the past. So this is not a condition that is peculiar. Sea level rise has been much more, these basically occurred because of natural variability. So you have changes in the solar radiation, you have changes in the axis of the Earth that take you sometimes millions of years or thousands of years to really have their effect. This was what happened in the past, you know, increased CO2, but those were natural, uh, not anthropogenic CO2, which is the most abundant, you know, uh, anthropogenic greenhouse gas. So what we see now is the velocity uh, where changes are happening. This you didn't have in the past. This huge increase uh, in the concentrations, in the trapping of the radiation uh, that is causing the increase in the temperature and the global warming as a whole, we didn't have that in the past so quickly. But that is still used as a basis for denial. This has happened before, but they are not looking at the velocity in which things are happening. Uh, Also, there is, uh, you know, it's convenient to deny because if you take the implications of fossil fuel replacement, some feel that they are going to be extremely affected. So it's better to deny and say, we don't have to do all these transformations in energy. Let's continue to, you know, rely on fossil fuels and, and that's it. Finally, uh, I'd like you to talk about your personal journey. Uh, As one of the leading climate scientists and as a vice chair of the IPCC, you are an inspiration to many Brazilian women, including myself. And can you tell me about your professional path until becoming IPCC vice chair and what were the challenges and wins as a woman scientist and administration from the global south? Uh, Melina, my life has been quite exciting, but I am not too young. I'm turning 70 next year. So it's quite a life and I have had so many opportunities. I would say there is passion and every single thing that I have done in my life has been with passion, passion and love. You know, my background is in statistics, as uh, you know, it has been mentioned. So going from being a statistician to being understood when I was in the climate change negotiation as a forest engineer, very few people knew I was not a a forester. (laughs) They were amazed when they heard about that, right? Because I was developing uh, methodologies, you know, uh, with forests. And uh, and some people used to question, you know, how, how does a statistician you know, do like a methodology for the clean development mechanism without being a, a forester. But I also have been uh, very curious of everything. I study a lot, I still do. Uh, I don't think that anyone ever will be able to say I know enough. And so I have been pursuing knowledge and still understanding that I know nothing, but possibly sufficient to stimulate me to do more. You know, I was, uh, you know, secretary uh, when the secretary on climate change and uh, environmental quality was established in the Minister of the Environment. And my last stop in Brasilia, in the Ministry of uh, the Environment, lent by the Minister of Science and Technology, was as director in the Department on Policies to combat deforestation in uh, Amazonia and uh, Cerrado. Uh, you mentioned before uh, uh, the effort uh, from IPCC to promote gender equality. Have you noticed uh, improvements in the context of uh, gender equality? Yeah, Melina, yeah, uh, we are improving. As I said, we are improving a lot. So we have many more women that are authors. And more than that, uh, women as co-chairs 
But this, after more than 30 years, it was the first time when IPCC had women as vice chairs. Leaving behind some messages, always do the work you're doing with passion and love. Publish, please publish, because all that IPCC does is to rely that people are publishing in the scientific literature can be assessed. So the robustness of the IPCC products depends on publications by everyone. So these, these are basically a couple of, uh, of messages that I would like to leave behind. Also is stimulating uh, women to really face the difficulties. It is not easy. And uh, it is interesting to see that maternity sometimes is seen like a barrier for women to participate in the IPCC because uh, once uh, they are nominated and selected as authors, particularly for the assessment reports, they have to commit themselves for four or five years. So they have to, you know, participate in the presidential meetings, as I mentioned before. They have to put a lot of their time into writing, but it's so worthwhile. And all this is voluntary. So this is also the beauty of the IPCC. And now in numerous thousands of hours that, you know, authors put into this, being only recognized for their love and dedication to what they do. So maternity should not be seen as a barrier. And um, IPCC is trying to pursue how can it facilitate, you know, maternity. In this cycle, I saw very interesting things that I would like to share, Lena. First, I saw women participate presentially in one of these lead authors meeting while the husband was in the corridor with the baby, waiting for the mom to come out and be able to breastfeed. This has been recurrent now. We see more husbands recognizing the importance to give their wives the professional chance that they want to have. So that is very interesting. And another something that, that was innovative in this cycle was to find places in particular where we are holding the, the meeting so that they could leave their children or babies with the care of someone and they could come at uh, you know lunchtime to see the baby. So we are trying to improve so that maternity would not need to be seen as an impediment. So these are just, you know, seeds that we are planting to make it simpler for women to participate. Diversity is, uh, is really important everywhere, not in the IPCC only, but everywhere. I'd like to, to thank you, Thelma, for talking to me today and for sharing with me and with our listeners, our audience, all these experiences and all this uh, information that it's uh, really important about IPCC and climate change. Thank you very much. Melena, thank you very much for the opportunity. Shada, thank you for hosting this uh, podcast and goodbye, everyone. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Thelma Krug, and our interviewer, Dr. Milena Ponchek, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. This episode also concludes Season 1 of the podcast. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media channels to stay updated about our upcoming season. Thanks to all our guests, interviewers, and listeners for a wonderful Season 1 of Atmospheric Tales.